Italian Wine Podcast, a Wine to Wine Business Forum 2021 media partner, is proud to present a series of sessions highlighting the key themes and ideas from the two-day event held on October the 18th and 19th. 2021. This hybrid edition of the Business Forum was jam-packed with the most informed speakers discussing some of the hottest topics in the wine industry today. For more information, please visit winetowine.net and tune in every Thursday at 2pm Central European Time for more episodes recorded during this latest edition of Wine to Wine Business Forum. All right. Well, um, good afternoon. Good morning. If you're in Asia, good evening. Um, I think we have people from all over the world in this session. So uh, excited to have the opportunity to co-moderate politics in the wine trade. So uh, my name is Russ Lorber. I'm a certified Italian wine ambassador, and I am an importer wholesaler based here in Baltimore, Maryland, Um, also working in Washington, D.C., And this is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. So uh, I look forward to co-moderating this with uh, Gemma Richardson, who I'll turn it over to now. Thank you, Russ. Yes, uh, my name is Gemma Richardson. I am uh, also an Italian wine ambassador. I have a business called Love Anna Maria uh, and make uh, primarily Pesto Genovese in Philadelphia. I also conduct online classes on uh, Genoese cuisine and culture, which obviously encompasses wine, uh, a great passion of mine. I'm really excited about this session today with our speaker, Mike Visev. Mike is a professor emeritus from the University of Puget Sound. He taught international political economy. He's also today known as the wine economist. So you probably know him from his blog online, uh, wineeconomist.com mostly focuses on analyzing and studying uh, today's global wine markets. He's written several books. I really appreciate his uh, kind of interdisciplinary lens, not just as an economist, uh, but as a storyteller. And uh, today he's going to really dive into really just uh, the intersection of wine at, uh, between economics and and politics. And so that uh, really encompasses internal, several internal uh, factors as well as external affairs, as we've seen in uh, recent years. It's been a true uh, kind of concern that we don't have, possibly we don't know what the future holds. But hopefully, Mike will have uh, more to say on that. So I'll pass it over to you, Mike. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today with you. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you, Russ. Ciao, Tutti. It's a uh, pleasure to be here. Virtually in Verona, uh, in real world, I am near Seattle, Washington, and so it is 6.45 a.m., and I'm looking forward to coffee with you all later, I think, when the session starts. Let me, let me share my screen. I have a brief presentation, but there'll be time for us, the three of us, to discuss, and if there are questions from the audience in Verona or elsewhere, for that to happen, too. So you know how this works. Just be patient here while I try to share my screen. Here we go. So the, um, the topic that I was given, I've been asked to speak on politics and wine trade. And I, I think this is, uh, uh, sometimes when I'm asked to speak at conferences like this, it's because of the wine economist side. And sometimes it's because of the professor side, the international political economist side. And I think this time it's a little bit of both. And it's actually a, a very challenging topic because where do you begin 
where do you end? And you're talking about politics and the wine trade. Everything is political these days. And if everything is political, how can wine be different? There is so much to talk about. If you had the time, you could probably write a book about wine politics. But the good news is you don't have to because that book already exists. Tyler Coleman wrote a book, uh, it's a 2008, I believe is the date of the book, A Wine Politics, How Governments, Environmentalists, Mobsters, and Critics Influence the Wines We Drink. It was actually, for the, the academic side of it, it's actually a revised version of his uh, doctoral thesis of all things. If you haven't, haven't read about wine politics in Tyler Coleman's book, I recommend it highly. So uh, in trying to figure out how to, how to um, uh, simplify this so we can, we can get going today, I decided to talk about what I think of as inside and outside of wine politics. Uh, there is uh, wine politics in the news today inside the wine sector, um, sort of wine versus wine as we try to hash out uh, how, to, how, to, how to approach the world today. And then there's also wine in the crossfire, uh, outside politics, how outside national and international political disputes can affect the, uh, the, the wine politics and, and well, what we do and how we do it and so forth. So to start with the inside, I was just accumulating, uh, looking at headlines and so forth recently, and I was struck by this headline on winesearcher.com, which is a good source of, uh, of economic and other analysis of the wine business. Spanish wine industry gets political. Well, of course it gets political. Politics and wine are aligning in Spain as the industry in this country struggles to hold together. And what the article was about is an inherent tension within the Spanish wine industry, which I think is not just the Spanish wine industry, that uh, the Appalachian regulations and rules uh, define a brand and so are very useful from an economic standpoint for wine, but they also represent restrictions as markets change and evolve and conditions change. And so within Spanish wine appellations, there's this tension with about appellation rules. Some want to see the rules um, uh, relaxed or changed or regulated to accommodate the changing conditions, while others wishing to strengthen the brand and, and keep the brand together. And so hold on to the traditions and so forth. You see this many places. Um, sometimes it's driven by economics, as is the case, I think, in the Spanish wine industry. Uh, other times it's, of course, driven by climate change, where climate change is the factor that's making things, uh, transforming the environment, the, the uh, economic, political, the, all the environments. And you see this, for example, in Bordeaux, where uh, a whole a handful of new wine grape varieties have been approved just because the environment makes that so very necessary. And so in Spain, within the Appalachians, uh, wine versus wine, fighting over identity. Uh, what does an Appalachian mean? What does Spanish wine mean? You see this elsewhere in the politics of national wine promotion groups. And here I've put the... Uh, uh, wines of South Africa logo on the screen here, but it's not just the wines of South Africa. Wines of Portugal, the Spanish wine, uh, Italian wine groups, as uh, 
we face scarce resources, changing environment. The, uh, there's a fight over the, how the resources are used. In South Africa, if you're uh, familiar with it or not, there, there is one very important group of producers that focus on quantity. If they can get yields very high, then despite low prices, uh, wine can be profitable in South Africa to do this. And so uh, they push to try to have their wines promoted by wines of South Africa and other such groups. But then there's that mirror image, the quality group, the group that you might associate with wines from Stellenbosch, for example, or Elgin, um, where uh, the, there's no way they can get yields high enough to, uh, to, to, to compete in the quantity side of the market. So for them, it's all about premium prices, pushing up prices, promoting the most premium products. And so you here you have quantity versus uh, quality or premium uh, of this. And uh, it's, it's a battle that, that you see almost everywhere. And of course, the um, problem is that uh, which, which side of this is going to work and how it's going to work depends a bit on the economic environment. And so here I have a, another uh, book cover picture for you. This is a book from the 1970s by the MIT professor uh, Lester Thoreau called The Zero Sum Societies. In the 1970s, there was a change in the overall economic environment from a growing market where there was a positive sum game. In a growing market, everyone can win. There's, there's no reason to have wine versus wine conflict or our producer versus, because uh, in a, with a growing, a, a growing pie, we see in the U.S., I was interested to learn that uh, in China, they now talk about the cake problem, the growing cake versus the, the static cake. When, when the cake is growing, when the pie is growing, when the market is growing, uh, politics is, uh, is peaceful, it's pacific. We can get along. Once the growth slows or stops, then the game changes to a zero-sum game where you fight over market share. It's like the situation in Spain or it's like the situation in South Africa. You begin to fight for scarce resources. And the worst case scenario is that the squabbles, the political squabbles of a zero-sum game, in fact, turns to a negative-sum game where we confuse consumers so much, we divide up uh, things, we, we lose influence so much that in fact, the, the, the market begins to decline on, decline on us. And we risk doing that right now. So here's an, uh, a recent OIV graphic. I hope this is clear for you all. This shows the evolution of world wine consumption uh, in the 21st century from 2000 to uh, 2020. And this is by volume, not value. Value, the value picture is just a little different. And you can see we've actually uh, gone through a uh, evolution for the three types of games from 2000 to about 2008 in that period before the global financial crisis. In fact, we were in that positive sum um, growth situation where wine politics was uh, less divisive because the market was growing. We could all win, we could all produce. It was a, a, a period that was uh, uh, really quite amazing. And then we went through this period until about 2016 where it was more or less a stable market. And so it became, became more of a zero-sum kind of game. And in just the last couple of years, uh, global consumption, according to the OIV, 
has has declined overall. Again, if we did this by value, this would not be quite the same sort of declined. So the um, the environment in which wine politics exists has been changing, and not changing in a very good way. Changing in a way that pits wine versus wine and uh, makes politics actually somewhat dangerous for us, it seems to me. But that doesn't mean that that's the road we have to take. As a political economist, someone who studies international, the politics of international economic relations, I know that sometimes having a common enemy is a way to bring people together, to get past the politics of division, the zero-sum politics, and get to a, the poli positive-sum politics uh, where uh, the growing pie or cake or growing wine market actually lies. And if you think, well, what common enemy do wine producers around the world have that uh, can help bring us together to give us a positive economic environment? Well, there's two of them. One is the global anti-alcohol movement that threatens all wine, threatens all producers of wine. And here, an organization called Wine in Moderation has been so very useful in uh, bringing producers within countries and between countries uh, to unite around a message of a wine as a cultural element, wine in moderation as a healthy product. And I've been very impressed with what my wine in moderation has been able to do to be a counterforce to the anti-alcohol movement, but also a counterforce to the divisive politics that you see. And then the second uh, image that you have here, uh, the Porto Protocol. There are, the Porto Protocol is, uh, was launched, I think, uh, three years ago in Porto, and it's an uh, environmental movement, uh, trying to unite people both within the wine producing sector, but all throughout the wine supply chains as well, unite them to oppose climate change, unite them to find and share techniques to reduce the climate impact, to make wine a part of the solution to the climate change problem, as opposed to part of the problem itself. So the anti-alcohol movement, climate change, these are both factors that I think can bring us together. And so politics can be positive for wine or politics can be negative for wine. And it seems to me that this is something that we need to pay very much attention to. So that's my discussion of uh, some elements of politics inside the wine industry. What about the outside effect? Well, I've had an interesting experience this uh, last summer. I, I went back and reread uh, Wine Wars, my 2011 book about the uh, global wine economy. And it made me realize how much the wine world has changed in just 10 years from 2011 to 2021. And so I pulled myself together and I've written a, a second, a follow-up book, Wine Wars 2, that will come out in 2022. And uh, there are a lot of differences. It's just incredible how much wine has changed in just 10 years. One type of change which is relevant to us here is in this global political environment in which wine exists. Back in 2011, the wine existed in a political era of expanding globalization. Again, it was that growing economy, growing market, growing pie. And despite the fact of the global financial crisis, it seemed like that's where we were still going. 
globalization seemed like a remarkably enduring and sturdy and powerful force. But just 10 years later, when I was working on Wine Wars 2, it seemed like things had changed quite a lot. Globalization is resilient, but fragile. We see how, uh, in terms of the politics, in terms of of, oh my gosh, global logistics, just moving products from here to there um, in terms of energy and everything. Uh, globalization seems much more fragile than we would have thought of it just a few years ago. And instead of wine benefiting from the political system, as we saw in 2011, where wine was benefiting from free trade agreements uh, with China, free trade agreements with Europe, free trade agreements with the United States, the uh, realm of the wine kingdom, bigger and bigger and growing, we see the opposite happening in 2021 and so forth, that as, the, uh, as globalization retracts, as globalization cracks and fissures, we see that wine actually gets caught in the crossfire. And so that wine is a victim of international politics in 2021-22, whereas wine was a beneficiary of international politics in uh, 2020, 2011 and before. You can see this a little bit in the data. Here again, these are OIV data. Here I've done by value instead of volume. But this is the evolution of world export, wine exports. And you can see wine exports rose and, and hit a little bit during the global financial crisis. But then they continue to rise again. That um, uh, uh, even as uh, globalization, and until finally globalization began to crack, 2016, uh, what happened in 2016? And then, uh, and then the most recent things. It, it seems like this, um, the, uh, as globalization has slowed down and uh, withdrawn somewhat, I won't overstate that, oh, it, it has had that effect on wine too. How does wine get caught in the crossfire? Well, here's a magazine cover from uh, uh, just a couple of years ago. And it's, it's that thing that happened in 2016, which is the election of a, of a populist protectionist uh, president in the United States. But wine has got cu caught in the crossfire. We've seen uh, uh, tariffs on wine by China against the United States, tariffs on wine by the U.S. against uh, some members of the European Union, China wine tariffs against Australia most recently, and then uh, Brexit disruptions and so forth. The, um, the interesting thing about uh, these tariffs, the thing I want to focus on here, is that in no case here were these normally protectionist tariffs. That is, China didn't put a, uh, a tariff on U.S. wine to protect Chinese wine industry. The U.S didn't put a tariff on uh, European Union, some members of the European Union's wine to protect U.S. wine. China didn't put the 212, I think, percent tariffs on to protect uh, uh, Chinese wine. In each case, the situation was that something else was involved. Uh, with the U.S. and China, it was tit for tat. Uh, U.S. puts uh, tariffs on Chinese steel, so China puts tariffs on U.S. wine. The U.S. gets upset about possibility of uh, uh, EU regulations on, um, on technology firms, uh, the Boeing Microsoft thing. Instead of the U.S. putting tariffs on Airbus products in the Boeing Airbus dispute, it put tariffs on some 
uh, EU wines. And in the case of China and Australia, Australia, some Australian leaders called for uh, investigation, thorough, more thorough investigation of the source of the uh, COVID pandemic, and China put the high tariffs on on Australian wines. And so, um, why pick on wine if the issues have nothing to do with wine? Then, then why pick on wine? And and. It's in fact a, a, an interesting situation that for many other products that are traded internationally and so forth, there are uh, have, they have complicated supply chains. So that, for example, if the U.S. had put a tariff on Airbus airplanes, this would actually have had a number of very terrible effects on U.S. firms because the air production of Airbus, like the production of Boeing airplanes, is in fact a globally integrated process. It's it's we see them as European products or U.S. products, but in fact they are, uh, to a certain extent, global products, and so it becomes becomes self defeating to try to do this. Now, this is true to a certain extent in wine as well, but wine is one of the few branded agricultural products. It's one of the few uh, globally traded products that that has such a strong identity. You know, in in wine we. We are happy about our terroir. We brag about our terroir, but this makes us a target for people who want to to uh, do something to punish France. Well, you French wine want to do something to punish Australia. Well, Australian wine. Australia was the worst affected. Although uh, it, this is uh, uh, disruptive in every case, Australia, of course, was the worst affected because it has spent a dozen years investing in the Chinese wine market, and so China was Australia's number one wine market by far bigger than the UK, bigger than the US. Uh, and then suddenly it, with those uh, tariffs, which again are not about wine, they're really about politics. They're really about political power and influence. Suddenly, suddenly it's all over, at least for now. Uh, and so, and so this, is, um, this is very disturbing. It's disturbing both because of these uh, unintended side effects that we get caught in the crossfire. It's also disturbing, as I think probably Russ uh, will we'll talk about in a minute, because uh, when we put, say, uh, tariffs on French wine or tariffs on, uh, on uh, uh, German wine or something, uh, we think, well, we're just hurting, hurting the French or the Germans. But in fact, um, because of internal distribution and the and international uh, commodity cycles, in fact, uh, the uh, impacts are much more widespread. And uh, to a certain extent, we are, uh, like in a bad Western movie, shooting ourselves in the foot. So what is the future of wine politics? Well, here I drew on a, what we call in the U.S. a spaghetti Western, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly, il bono, il brutto, il cattivo for this. It seems to me that it's possible for this to go in a number of different ways. And so uh, this means for those of us in the wine industry that there are important risks that we need to consider. There is a movement to rebuild the uh, rules-based international system to try to grow the world markets, grow world wine as well. That would be il bono. And I think, I, I hope that is the uh, positive sum market case. Uh, uh, wine can contribute to this, to this by uh, coming together for wine in moderation, coming together for the Porto protocols, and, and then moving beyond this to try to do our part in supporting a, uh, a growing international system. But there are many things that go, go wrong with this. We could move back into the uh, zero-sum game, il bruto, 
in this case. And and so the the, the fight becomes more internal. The uh, the danger is uh, il cattivo here. It's the danger is that uh, the game becomes negative sum, a race to the bottom sort of affair where we we move against each other so well. The 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 uh, just this morning the, the there were was economic growth news released from China where. Uh, it appears that China is willing to um, uh, sacrifice growth in order to uh, to reform its economy. And China is such an important engine of economic growth. Uh, it means that things are very risky. And so that's uh, the uh, looking at the takeaway ideas. The stagnant global wine market increases political tensions within the wine industry. And so we need to try to manage those tensions so that we avoid the worst case scenario. Wine is caught in the crossfire as global momentum has stalled. We need to support the policies that can, can, can bring back globalization and move us ahead in this and recognize that um, uh, we have a part to play in trying to get the global markets ahead. And finally, we need to recognize the risks. Wine politics adds another risk to uh, international. Uh, it wouldn't be such a bad idea if we all in our businesses were to were to do a, a politics, a political uh, assessment to look at how open or um, vulnerable we are to the domestic and international uh, political risks. All right, that's my that's my report. Thank you, Gemma. Over to you. Yeah, thanks so much. That was um, really enlightening. Uh, especially when you talk about, um, you know, the U.S. And, and various countries, not really, you know, wine has such a strong brand and identity. And so better to put better to put a tariff on, on wine rather than Boeing Airbus, which ob has obvious implications to various industries in the U.S. But it is so true that it has deep implications. Many industries uh, and I can speak, you know, obviously Russ, Russ will have a lot to speak on this as an importer. Um, me coming from the beverage management side, uh, I, you know, I launched my food brand during COVID, but uh, before that I've, I've been in beverage management in restaurants in New York and Pennsylvania. And so I, I actually moved to Pennsylvania right before COVID and was kind of, uh, I guess came, you know, this was a new market and I understood that, you know, it's a liquor controlled state there are the state of Pennsylvania puts tax on all wines and, and liquors, even for restaurants. And therefore, you know, I was presented as someone trying to put a put together a wine list, a beverage program for an Italian restaurant, trying to highlight Italian wine. There are various obstacles. Number one, the wine itself costs more. It costs more. And we are, you know, we were reading in the paper about Trump, you know, it putting, you know, increasing tariffs 100% uh, starting, I think, in, in January, you know, thank God that didn't happen. But, you know, we were kind of wondering, what are we going to do? Because the consumer in Philadelphia is is a bit more price sensitive than, than one of New York City. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think with every challenge, there's also the opportunity. Um, and it brought an interesting, you know, we saw it, how do we deal with this? And so, you know, it it brought on this kind of idea of expanding maybe a bit of the program into domestic wines that folk, you know, that highlight Italian grapes. 
um, you know, grown in California, Washington State, which which obviously has its place and, and should be celebrated. Uh, but at the same time, what do you do when the prices are just going to get higher and uh, the price sensitivity is not really going to change uh, from the consumer side? So I certainly see that in my own food production uh, with pesto genovese. Uh, I've seen the price of pine nuts go up. Uh, probably seven dollars up, seven an increase of seven dollars a pound in the past three months at wow. wholesale price. So that is really hard when you have a premium product that already is pushing uh, the ba- you know the boundaries of of, of what a, someone will pay for a fresh product is that. So yeah, I mean it's it's just been it's kind of like we're in the ringer, <laughs> trying to we're just kind of playing trying to figure it out as we go but um at the same time you know carrying it on with grace as you would in the dining room i don't know if uh, russ you have more to uh elaborate especially as an importer um how you you're handling uh the repercussions yeah, I, of this trade war yeah absolutely um and, and sorry for dropping out there for for a moment um but thank you for for letting me back in um, as you mentioned, I, uh, as, as an importer, what happened with the tariffs recently was it, it was actually existential for me. So I, I launched my business. I started building the business about two years ago and launched last year. And um, the tariffs went in place around September of 2019. Italy was left out of that, but there were these threats of 100% tariffs that were that were happening. And so I remember writing my business plan thinking, if that happens, that wipes me out before I even get started. Like, why would I, why would I do this? And so, you know, Mike, I think at the macro level, you point out some really interesting dynamics with the market not growing, the intensity of competition, and the, you know, almost politics being wielded as a weapon. So why should I not shut my business down and just go do something else? Is there anything you can give me that maybe provides some hope for the future about the, you know, the dynamics of, of uh, globalization and moving away from it? Oh, well, I, I feel like I've become a counselor now, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, um, uh, the, I mean, the, the good news is, it seems to me that, uh, Underneath all of this, the um, consumers are bec- becoming better informed about wine. Uh, that that in, that in fact the uh, within the U.S. because that's that's where your market is, of course. That um, some consumers at least have used this period of time during the COVID era here uh, to, to learn more and and become uh, um, uh, better, not more knowledgeable about. Uh, wines and so forth, and uh, uh, the um, it's been interesting for me to watch the impact of the uh, direct-to-consumer marketing that takes place. Now I know that you're an importer and wholesaler in this, but but uh, as people have uh, have uh, gone to this, have had to shut down. This had a bad effect and a good effect. The bad effect is they're they're not eating at restaurants and bars and so forth, so they they don't have the psalms guiding them to new discoveries in wine that would be so very helpful. And that that's that especially so many of my uh, Italian and French friends have used as a way to introduce wines to the American market. They've gone first into the restaurant 
sector where they will have hand cells of wine and the hand cells then are, are a very effective way to have consumers learn about new regions or new brands and new grape varieties and so forth. And we've lost that. And so a hopeful sign is as we return to um, something that is more normal, that it seems to me that as we come back to that, we'll be looking for that experience again. We'll be looking for the, the, the restaurant to help us have these new discoveries, that this will be even more important than before. Uh, on the other hand, during the pandemic, uh, to a certain extent, uh, some of the uh, uh, direct-to-consumer producers have tried to, to fill in that gap as well by uh, trying to introduce wines. Uh, I've seen so many mystery box sales where they will put up uh, a bunch of wines from different places and so forth and ship them out at a, uh, and to try to have people have these uh, discovery experiences because there is one part of the wine, uh, wine consumers that just want to have the same wine that they like every night, night after night. But for the rest of us, the world, the world is a playground. We want to discover these things. And so I was looking over your list. You have, you, uh, Russ, you, you have some great producers from interesting, interesting regions in Italy. And you have one from Spain, I think, as well. And uh, gosh, what a playground. What a, what a chance to discover some interesting wines. Uh, I can't wait for more people to uh, be able to, to take advantage of that. I yeah. think it's coming. I think it's coming. Thank you. You, well, you actually touched on something that's pretty. Uh, I, I think the, you're, the consumers that you mentioned are the ones that I'm that I'm looking for. And so, but but thank you for the for the counsel. I'm sorry, Gemma. <laughs> I didn't. I interrupted oh, no, you. No. About to... Yeah. No worries. I I you know this conversation is really obviously has uh, parallels uh, to you know my food business and and a lot of other businesses you know uh, intersecting with hospitality food and beverage. And I, I really think this idea that consumers are maybe spending less time in restaurants, at least now, which means less interface with that Psalm, who is your guide into the world of wine. It's really pushing and encouraging other businesses or other, you know, people in the game to possibly encourage or highlight education as part of their business model. Um, that certainly has pushed my business from originally a consumer packaged goods brand to really an educational one. You know, if I am not going to be a sommelier in a restaurant, I'm certainly going to be one online with my consumers. My, you know, for me, Ligurian wine is, you know, obviously not the, it's very, has very small production compared to other regions. And, um, you know, obviously there's, I, I will never pass up a glass of Barolo, uh, but <laughs> it certainly tells a story uh, and a very, it has a very lengthy story and is a playground that spans centuries. And, uh, you know, that's something that I want to share with people. And uh, for me, the hook is pesto because people, it's such a, it's part of our voc everyday vocabulary in whatever iteration it might be, but really, you know, in order to get them in, I can then share with them histories of, you know, the Republic of Genoa to uh, Rossese di Dolce Acqua, Colli di Luni, the Roman Empire using that as an ancient uh, harbor to uh, bring the marble from Massa Carrara down to Rome. I mean, it, you, could, you could go on forever. Um, so, you know, I kind of see the you, Russ, hopefully, you know, I don't know to 
what extent how big your your company is but you know do you see education as part of your business model or partnering with people who uh, really focus on that yeah for me for me absolutely um in fact if uh one of the things if you if you visit our website um, our, our mission and, and values is essentially combining a curated portfolio with, with inclusive and approachable education. And because we're looking, you know, Mike, I think you kind of described the consumer breakdown very well in that you have some people that have their every night drinkers. Um, and then you have other people that are curious. And I even find them to be somewhat brand agnostic, where they're more interested in just trying as many different things as they can. And if the producer has an interesting story to the point where it gets in front of them, then that's that's kind of the key. So I I, I think along with that is I because I kind of you know I look at people like like Gemma and I look at other like-minded importers like we're all fighting the same fight effectively. And and I, I you know Mike, one of the things that you you explore is with the market kind of shrinking, it intensifies this competition. I'm looking in the chat box and uh, and Joaquin, uh, Joaquin Garcia Marquina points out in Spain uh, where the Appalachians are essentially missing an opportunity because there's too much internal competition. What do you think is keeping the wine industry from reframing its competition um, and instead of seeing each other as the competition, maybe working more together to find those consumers that are just interested in in trying different things and maybe trying to take share away from a category like spirits, for example. No, it is it is the case in the U.S. It isn't just the the wine consumption has flattened. It, it's the case that the uh, the whole alcohol, a beverage alcohol consumption, has flattened out. And that uh, uh, beer has suffered in in the U.S. Uh, spirits and wine, to a certain extent, have uh, taken taken the beer market away, except for a, apparently Mexican beer is the exception to that. In uh, Spain, well, of course, in Spain, there's recently been good news that Spain is a is a market that um, where wine has declined and and beer has uh, has risen in, in much of the 21st century. And just recently, uh, we've seen uh, domestic consumption, which is why Spain has to push so hard on exports. Uh, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, Spanish producers engage in a race to the bottom uh, because they have uh, their the prices that they get for their wines are much lower than they should be. Spanish wines, Spanish wines, uh, on based on quality. Uh, certainly can compete at higher price points that they do, but because they're all pushing together to export so much. So there is this frantic race to the bottom. And so the good news here is in Spain, the um, domestic market is recovering uh, as well. And so so maybe this will change the dynamic, but it is just so hard um, in um, the, uh, the people who see the future in change uh, and the people who see the future in, um, uh, in protecting what they have uh, uh, in the, uh, in Wine Wars, Gemma, I know you're reading it now. In in the chapter on Mondo Vino, I discuss two different definitions of what an entrepreneur is. In America, an entrepreneur is someone who grasps change and moves ahead in something new. And uh, in France, an entrepreneur is someone who can protect what he already has. And yes. it seems like it's it's those two um, it's those two ideas of uh, what it is to be uh, to, to to be an entrepreneur and a leader. 
that happens uh, in in Italy. The uh, the debate uh, it is less. It is this is less political because the uh, IGT wines are are the escape valve for Italian producers, especially who want to do something new and different and not be bound by the rules. And I, so many of my Italian producer friends have uh, reacted to the changing market environment by, by uh, developing more uh, IGT wines uh, uh, to, to, fill in, to fill in this gap. Well, uh, yeah, I really like, I like the breakdown of the entrepreneur as I find myself at the intersection of uh, being an entrepreneur in the U.S. trying to uh, celebrate the entrepreneurship of a, of a different country, so a different uh, lens. I, uh, you know, I, I almost think I'm thinking about, again, just uh, wine as an emblem and in a political sphere as a brand. And, yeah, it's a little bit, I don't know if it's sad or just where we are in the U.S. still forming a culture around wine. Uh, to the extent that in the political sphere, wine is not considered yet an emblem of the U.S. You were talking about, I think, earlier on uh, quality versus quantity. And uh, for some markets uh, where, you know, for example, uh, in Stellenbosch and Elgin, where the yields aren't, you know, they can't reach such high yields. And they so they really have to push on quality uh, premium wines. I I was listening to uh, one of your other talks uh, that I, I found really interesting, this idea on uh, marketing and branding of land and brand. And so I was just wondering if you thought uh, with Stellenbosch and Elgin, you know, where they have to push premium and perhaps are you finding market says that prioritizing some of, a lot of their resources on branding and marketing? And is that is that taking away from producers? Oh, the um, it, uh, taking away from them, uh, Gemma, in what respect? Financially, financially, oh. because you are uh, you are just really focusing on uh, marketing. No, yeah, well, of course, everybody in the wine business is all surprised at how much time they spend selling. They, they you know, yeah. they uh, it's it's you just it's what you have to do. But I see, I see sort of a pyramid where you have things like uh, wines of South Africa or uh, wines of Portugal that, that develop a regional base so that there's an identity to, say, Portuguese wines, and then uh, maybe an identity to wines of the Duro. And then, so this then, um, so these collective marketing groups build a foundation that then makes it, um, uh, facilitates the private brand to go on top of this so that uh, so that you get both mm -hmm. land and brand, but through a, co a combination of cooperation and competition. Gotcha. Gotcha. And who are the who do you think are the first movers in creating regional identity? Is that something happening internal to the country or? Um, is uh, yeah, I, I, I think it has to it has to come from within. And so that we, we need to begin yeah. with cooperation. Uh, yes. And it's, it, cooperation is difficult. So it's a hard fire to start sometimes. I totally agree. Yeah. Especially in such a fragmented area. So, well, Mike, Mike, this has been brilliant. I think we are at the end of our time here um, today. I feel like I could talk with you about this for hours, though. So uh, thank you for 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 the presentation and for the discussion after if uh, if there are any other, I'm looking in the chat box now. Actually, Richard posted something. If there are any other questions that come up from anybody 
who has participated in this session or anybody who watches it after the fact, contact Wine to Wine uh, through their social media channels in the coming days. Um, and we'll see if we can get those questions filtered toward us and toward Mike so that we can get answers for them. Gemma, any closing words from you? Just thank you. This is great. I It's it's 10.30 a.m. and I'm ready for a glass of champagne. So. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I really, yeah, thank you so much, Mike. It was great oh, having you and great to speaking with cheer, you. Also. Cheers to you both. It's a pleasure to, to meet you and I hope we can get together in one place. For, yes. for a glass of Prosecco or something. I love that. Right, right, yeah. Alta Languedoc, let's do it. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> right. All right, well, thanks everybody. Uh, ciao, salute, and uh, cin cin. Arrivederci, grazie. Arrivederci. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin. Everybody. Italian Wine Podcast celebrates its fourth anniversary this year, and we all love the great content they put out every day. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People has become a big part of our day, and the team in Verona needs to feel our love. Producing the show is not easy, folks. Hurting all those hosts, getting the interviews, dropping the clubhouse recordings, not to mention editing all the material. Let's give them a tangible fan hug with a contribution to all their costs. Head to ItalianWinePodcast.com and click Donate to show your love.